So there are handouts as always. You may already all have one, and um, I admit um, it's kind of a, a less than inspiring handout on the front. But on the back, I went ahead and gave us the timeline again if you'd like it. Uh, because we've been on a bit of a hiatus the past few weeks. We've had other business to attend to in this hour. And so um, let's just think about a little bit of a refresher of where we've been. Not, I won't spend a lot of time. Um, but we are actually nearing the end of this survey. Next week will be the last in the survey. We'll finish Second Chronicles next week. Um, but where did we begin? We began with Solomon, of course. Um, the kind of the high point, the golden age. Israel's history, um, but it didn't last long because after Solomon we looked at his foolish son Rehoboam and we saw what happened during his reign and that the kingdom was divided in two, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, happened during Rehoboam's reign and then after that we looked at King Jehoshaphat, faithful King Jehoshaphat. Um, but as faithful as he was, he made at least one large mistake and that he um, chose to make an alliance by marriage with his son Jehoram to the daughter of wicked King Ahab in the north. And the last time that we met for the, the series, we looked at the bad fruit that that alliance bore. We looked at Jehoram, we looked at the next king Ahaziah, and then evil queen Athaliah. And then finally, faithless Joash. And I'll admit that our last lesson was a bit of a downer, perhaps. It was perhaps um, depressing. But that was the reality in Judah at that time. It was a dark time in Judah's history. Thankfully, things are happier today. We will have a much more encouraging lesson, perhaps. Um, we are looking at King Hezekiah, um, who the chronicler holds forth as one of the greatest kings ever in Judah. He compares him favorably with King David himself. Um, so Hezekiah today, and then as I said, next week we'll finish the survey looking mostly at King Josiah. Now just a few more words of kind of orientation um, because we need to make sure we understand something historical that happened that the chronicler doesn't really say anything about. Because as we've looked through our survey the past um, number of weeks, the chronicler almost exclusively focuses on the southern kingdom of Judah. And it really only ever talks about things that happen in the north when it's kind of this direct relationship to something in the south or a direct connection. Um, and for whatever reason, the chronicler chooses to say nothing about the fact, um, as you see on your timeline, in about the year 721 B.C., um, the northern kingdom of Israel effectively comes to an end. Um, the nation of Assyria comes in. They invade the north and effectively bring that monarchy to an end. And the chronicler simply says nothing about it, but the fact that that happened, the fact that Assyria has done that and has taken um, the northern kingdom captive, so to speak, they brought in foreigners to occupy the land. Um, the fact that Assyria is doing that and has done that, it makes a difference in today's lesson because that happened, the northern kingdom came to an end probably about five years or so before Hezekiah takes the throne. So that's very recent history when it comes to our lesson today. And really, I wanted to mention that for two main reasons. First of all, and maybe this goes without saying, uh, there's no longer two kingdoms. There's just one. At this time, Hezekiah's reign, it's just Judah. 
Um, and we'll see that Hezekiah, faithful as he is, he makes some concerted efforts um, to kind of reunify the people. Because as much as we saw that the northern kingdom of Israel was really this apostate nation, yet at the same time, we understand that there were, would still have been some faithful men and women in the north. And Hezekiah does what he can, as we'll see this week, to kind of bring them back in, bring them back together with Judah. And secondly, um, other thing to keep in mind is that... Um, while Judah, the southern kingdom, had not been taken captive at all the way that the northern kingdom had, Assyria was still throwing its weight around in the south. And in the previous king's reign before Hezekiah, King Ahaz, he experienced some harassment from Assyria. And we will see that at that time, one might say that even Judah, while they're still their own nation with their own king, they were in some ways under some authority of the Assyrians. Some, you might say that they had become kind of vassals in the kingdom of Assyria. Um, so that's going to play in to our lesson today. So keep that in mind as we go. So if you haven't, I haven't asked you to, but turn to Second Chronicles chapter 29, and we will begin, and this, this lesson will unfold in three stages. Um, first of all, chapter 29 is the cleansing of the temple, um, restoring the temple worship. Chapter 30 is the reinstitution of the Passover feast, also the feast of the unleavened bread. And kind of a corollary to that, chapter 31 has some further reforms related to the temple and the priests. We're not going to focus on that as much. And then chapter 32, the Assyrians do show up. In the southern kingdom. Assyria comes now to invade, threatening Jerusalem itself. And so we'll see that as the third stage. So here we go. Chapter 29, I'll just read verses 1 through 3. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. So here at the very beginning, like I said, the chronicler is already comparing Hezekiah to David. He's saying that Hezekiah is doing things that David did faithfully. And the very first thing the chronicler tells us that Hezekiah did in the very first year, the very first month of his reign, he opens the doors of the temple and repairs them. Now, why is that significant? Um, well, this is not just simply the act of opening a door that you or my, I might do to open a door for someone. Rather, I think we're to understand that the temple doors at that time had probably been locked. The temple had not been in use. In the previous king's reign, Ahaz's reign, the temple was basically shut down. Um, it was not able to be used for the purpose that it was an inten intended. We're even told in the previous chapter, chapter 28, uh, that in Ahaz's reign, um, they took the temple utensils, the things that the priests would have used to perform their service, and those were cut in two, effectively saying that even if the priests could get in to the temple, they wouldn't be able to do their work. So the temple had been shuttered in Ahaz's reign, and now Hezekiah is writing that. He's setting things right, reopening the temple, repairing whatever is broken down, 
And, of course, if you're going to restore temple worship, well, who do you need? Well, you need the priests and the Levites. And so he calls them together in verse 4. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them into the square on the east. And then he said to them, Listen to me, O Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done evil in the sight of the Lord our God, and have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs. They have also shut the doors of the porch and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was against Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of terror, of horror, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his burning anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and burn incense. So what is Hezekiah asking the priests and Levites to do? Well, fundamentally two things. First of all, verse 5 is really the summary. Consecrate yourselves, that is, set yourselves apart, And secondly, after you've done that, then consecrate the house of the Lord. It's the temple. Remove anything unclean that's in there. And why is that necessary? Well, as I already said, things had gotten um, pretty bad for the temple and the priests in Ahaz's day. And so Hezekiah admits that the people in Judah have been living in unfaithfulness. Um, Interestingly, verses 8 and 9 have some interesting language that he uses to describe this. Um, I'll, I'll try to show that really he's using the language of captivity. He says in verse 9 um, that our, our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. And then in verse 8, interesting language he says, he says that he, that is God, had made them an object of terror, of horror, and of hissing, as you see with our own eyes. So what is Hezekiah really saying? Because at this point, Judah had not been taken into captivity. Israel had, but Judah had not. Well, there's an interesting similarity here with the words he's using to some words we find in Jeremiah, actually. Of course, Jeremiah had not been written down at that point. Jeremiah was not ministering yet at this time. But listen to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 18. This is... Jeremiah's words describing the eventual Babylonian captivity, which of course hadn't happened yet, but this is what he says. And I will pursue them with the sword, with famine and with pestilence, and I will make them a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse and a horror and a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I've driven them. So very similar words Jeremiah uses to the words that Hezekiah is using. What's the connection here, or is there one? I think there is. It's because I think the chronicler is kind of doing two things here. Not only is he recording Hezekiah's words given to the people in Judah, but I think the chronicler is also giving a clear message to his audience, who, of course, understand or remember 
that the chronicler wrote the chronicles many years after this took place, after Judah had been taken captive, sent into exile by Babylon, and then even they had even returned from that exile. So the people that the chronicler was writing to, they had experienced captivity. They knew what it was like to be a reproach and a terror and a curse. They were all too familiar with being captives. And so perhaps the twofold message, Hezekiah's message to his people in his day in Judah, as well as the chronicler's message to the people that had returned from the Babylonian captivity is this, that the way back from being a curse and a reproach is to first of all set yourself apart, consecrate yourself as one of God's holy chosen people, and then secondly, to remove any uncleanness that exists in the community. And after you do that, as we see, you should engage in wholehearted worship of God. That would have been the message for the chronicler's audience and for Hezekiah. And really, that's the theme for our lesson today. Um, if we were to ask the question, how is it that a holy people are to live? How is it that God's people are to live? Well, two things we see. We set ourselves apart. That is, we don't live like the culture of the world around us. And then we engage in a wholehearted worship of God. We're going to see this kind of systematically happening as we continue. And I should say, just as a caveat, when we talk about um, Hezekiah leading his people to engage in worship, when you hear the word worship today, don't, don't just think singing, okay? We have to understand that worship is something much broader than singing. Worship, when you hear worship, don't think church service. Um, what Hezekiah will be doing is leading his people to live worshipful lives. And so in order to do this, the priests and Levites consecrate themselves. They consecrate the temple. They remove the uncleanness. And then verse 16 of chapter 29 is a bit of a summary. So the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it. And every unclean thing which they had found in the temple of the Lord, they brought out to the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites received it to carry out to the Kadron Valley. Now, we were probably familiar with the Kadron Valley as a place that we see in the Gospels. The Kadron Valley existed between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, actually. And we see in John's Gospel that after the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples, they set out across the Kadron on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. But in Hezekiah's day, the Kadron Valley was basically Israel or Judah's garbage dump. It was the place where you discarded the unclean things. It was the place where, as we saw last time, where evil Queen Athaliah met her end. That's where Jezebel was buried. So they take the unclean things and they throw them there in the Kadron Valley. And after they've done this, after they've prepared themselves, so what's the first thing that they'll do in worship? Look at verses 20 through 24. Then King Hezekiah arose early and assembled the princes of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, the sanctuary in Judah. And he ordered the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. 
They slaughtered the bulls, and the priest took the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. They also sprinkled the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar. And they slaughtered the lambs also and sprinkled the blood on the altar. Then they brought the male goats of the sin offering before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priest slaughtered them and purged the altar with the blood to atone for all Israel. For the king ordered the burnt offering and the sin offering for all Israel. So what's the first thing that happens after they've set themselves apart, taken out the unclean things from the temple? The first thing that takes place are sacrifices. And they're sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin. I think this is really alluding to what would normally have happened on the Day of Atonement. They're sprinkling the blood on the altar the same way that Leviticus told them that they should. And of course, you may have noticed that they're placing their hands on the goat. The symbolism of taking all of their sin, all of their guilt, putting it on the scapegoat. And then in verse 25, we saw the first hint of this reunification. He was not just trying to atone for Judah's sins, but for all Israel, it says. Making a sin offering for all Israel. So the first thing they do has to do with confession of sin and making atonement for sin. So, for us, what does that mean so far? Well, again, we think about this process of a worshipful life. I think we might say that those of us in the church and God's covenant community, that if we are going to set ourselves apart from the world, from the culture, um, one of the very first actions that we'll do is to seek to confess and repent of our sin. Of course, initially, when we come to faith, repenting of our sin, but then we know that a life lived in worship is a continual repenting of sin, continual seeking forgiveness for our sin. Um, and when you think about, um, well, I'll wait for that comment. So the first thing they do as an act of worship is to seek forgiveness of sin. Let's see what happens next, verse 25 through 28. He, that is Hezekiah, then stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with harps, and with lyres, according to the command of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet. For the command was from the Lord through his prophets. And the Levites stood with the musical instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah gave the order to offer the burnt offering on the altar. Then the burnt offering began... The song of the Lord also began with the trumpets, accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. While the whole assembly worshipped, the singers also sang, and the trumpet sounded. And all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. So, this next act of worship taking place is now worshipping in song, not only with voices, but also with instruments. And I think, again, we think about ourselves. This is the way that our lives should also look. Understanding that our sin has been forgiven, as they already saw that they had confessed and made sacrifices for sin, that should necessarily result in vocal praise of God and instrumental praise if you're so gifted. I think that we all should understand, we probably all know this, that it is God's will for God's people that they should sing vocally God's praises. And specifically, 
God's will for God's people is that they should sing God's praises together with God's people. Now, the reality is, sometimes I don't mind, well, that's going to sound bad. It's sometimes disappointing to miss out on a sermon, right? But with our technology of today, we can still listen to it later after the fact. But the thing that I hate to miss most about missing church is the vocal singing of God's praises. Because that is not something that you can do by yourself later on after the fact. Yes, we can sing by ourselves at any time worship of God. But there's something about being gathered together with God's people, singing his praises. And that's what's happening here. There is this joyful worship taking place. So after they've confessed sin, after they have verbally praised the Lord, let's see what happens next. Look at verse 31. Then Hezekiah answered and said, Now that you have consecrated yourself to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all those who were willing brought burnt offerings. So I think you could say that now the people themselves, previously it was Hezekiah that had brought all of the animals for the sacrifices. Now the people themselves are bringing them. The assembly in, in Judah is bringing animals to bring as a thank offering. So let's summarize four things we've already seen. Hezekiah leading his people to live worshipful lives. They're setting themselves apart from the world. They're confessing, seeking forgiveness of sin. They're singing God's praises, and they're bringing thank offerings. They're bringing thanksgiving to the Lord. Then the next thing that occurs after this, look at the beginning of chapter 30, just verse 1. Now Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh. They should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover the Lord God of Israel. So the next activity that occurs as he's leading them to live worshipful lives is he wants to bring back this festival of remembrance. He wants to bring back, reinstitute the feast, particularly of Passover. Because um, I think we should understand that previously, I'm sure in Ahaz's day, these feasts were not taking place. And we know that Passover is that feast that was instituted because of the Exodus. It was a celebration of God bringing his people out of bondage in Egypt. God's redemption of his people. And notice again that he's inviting all Israel. He's wanting everyone to take part in this. Not just Judah. And while he's being gracious to extend this invitation to all Israel... When we look at his invitation specifically, he's literally sending invitations. He's sending messengers with invitations to come to the Passover. In verses 6 through 9, notice that he's being gracious in including Israel, but he's also including a word of rebuke. Look at how he frames the invitation, verses 6 through 9. And the couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with a letter from the hand of the king and his princes even according to the command of the king, saying, O sons of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, 
that he may return to those of you who escaped and are left from the hand of the kings of Assyria. And do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a horror as you see. Now do not stiffen your neck like your fathers, but yield to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his burning anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive, and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate, and will not turn his face away from you, if you return to him. So Hezekiah is clear that those that were in the north, they had clearly broken God's covenant. Um, and as such, they should repent of their sin. Now, I made much of the fact during our lesson on Rehoboam, when the kingdom was divided, I made much of the fact that when they were breaking God's covenant, they were, or when they were rejecting God's covenant, they were rejecting God himself, and that's true. But notice that in this case, many generations later, they'd been living apart from faithfulness to God for many generations now that Hezekiah is king. And he is really extending to them a very gracious invitation. But the reality is that's really how gracious God is. Because even for these people that have been living in unfaithfulness for many years, even, they had, even though they had broken God's covenant, the fact still remains, as he says in verse 9, that the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. I think this should remind us that God's grace can extend to anyone. That there's never anyone that's beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. Now these people had been living for many, many years in the north in unfaithfulness. And one might have thought that they were a lost cause. One might have thought that there's no hope for them. By appearances, that may have been the case. But Hezekiah is making clear that God still is who he is and that is a loving and compassionate God and if they would return to him, they would find forgiveness. And again, just think about how, what does this mean for us? Well, it could be that we have known people in our lives that seem like that they are a lost cause. We may have known people in our lives because of their family history, because of generations of unfaithfulness. We might think, I don't really know if God's grace extends to them. But I think Hezekiah's invitation to Israel tells us that God's grace extends to anyone that would come to him by faith and repent. And even though it was a very gracious invitation, we shouldn't be surprised that the invitation was spurned by some in the north. Verses 10 and 11 tell us that not everyone liked the fact that Hezekiah was calling them to repent. It says that they laughed him, laughed at him and mocked them. But nevertheless, um, Passover does get underway. And just understand that Passover is this one-day feast, but it's at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that feast is a week long. So 
So this Passover that Hezekiah is reinstating lasts for one day, and then there's generally a week-long feast after that of unleavened bread. And this gets underway in verse 13 and 14. Now many people were gathered at Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of unleavened bread in the second month, a very large assembly. And they arose and removed the altars which were in Jerusalem. And they also removed all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. Now, this is something that we've kind of already seen happening, right? Um, Previously, it was the temple that was cleansed, and that was done by the priests and the Levites. Now, all this number of people that have gathered in Jerusalem, it's probably thousands or even tens of thousands. Now the people are going throughout the whole city looking for altars, looking for places of false worship. And they're taking these idols, they're taking these things down, and they're throwing them into the garbage dump in the Kadron Valley. And again, I think this shouldn't surprise us. I think this should be the normal pattern. Because when God's people have set themselves apart, consecrated themselves from the world, and they've also worshipped in song, and they've brought offerings of thanksgiving, that is, when they're engaged in worshipful lives, I think that it should be easy to identify idolatry, and it should be very um, easy to get rid of it. Um, I think lives lived in worship should result in us being sensitive to sin, being sensitive to idolatry when we see it. And so I think that's the question. Are we sensitive to idolatry in our own lives? Do we see it? Now, the, our idolatry takes a different form, I think, than it may, may have done in Hezekiah's day. Um, I don't think any of us are tempted to go find literal places or objects to worship. Normally, idolatry that we see in our lives is focused on ourselves, right? We would like to worship ourselves in any number of ways, whether it's, think about just the broad categories of sin, you know, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. I think those are the kind of idols that we most often encounter in our lives. And the question is, how sensitive are we to those? How easily do we recognize them when they're there? And how much do we desire to get rid of them and throw them in the proverbial garbage dump? Um, I think there's a good chance that if we're not being sensitive to those things in our lives, then it could be that we're not living lives of worship that have been set apart, confessing sin, bringing thanksgiving and praise to God. And the reality is, um, this idol worship was prevalent in Judah throughout their history. And we've seen this before in our survey. We have seen that it, uh, oftentimes, even when these idols and altars and places of false, false worship are taken down or removed, it often doesn't take long until they spring back up again. And so the next king has to deal with it again. Um, and how is it that that can happen kind of again and again? It's a recurring problem. Well, I think the theme we've seen is that this false worship, worshiping things that are not God, is taking place 
because there's not true worship taking place. Um, so again, in order for us, I think, to live lives truly in worship is to be sensitive to sin when we see it and to identify it and remove it just as they are doing. And then Hezekiah leads them in this brief prayer in verses 18 through 20. And this is an interesting prayer. As the people have gathered for the feast, uh, verse 18, for a multitude of the people, even many from Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than prescribed. For Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though not according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. So the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. So there were a few things taking place in this Passover that were not exactly as prescribed by the law. And there's reasons for that, and I'm not going to dwell on those. But notice the way that Hezekiah prays. He prays that God would pardon the people, that is, forgive their sin, but not according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. I think that Hezekiah, rightly so, was mainly focused on their hearts. Or are the people that are doing this, engaging in the feast, engaging in the worship, is their heart seeking the Lord rightly, regardless of if they're meeting every jot and tittle of what your law prescribed? And I think the point is, God understands and he heard this. He heard the prayer and he healed the people. God found it acceptable worship, even if they were not doing everything just as he had prescribed. And perhaps that might surprise us. I don't think it should. Um, because this is one of the perennial problems with God's people in every age, right? I think it's been a problem in my own life and probably each of us can think of times in our lives in the past whether it's before we came to Christ or afterwards where we were primarily concerned with doing all of the things that we knew we were supposed to do outwardly and in our heart we were not really seeking the Lord and worshiping him and so Hezekiah is mostly concerned that the people's heart is truly seeking the Lord that they are not somehow just obeying outwardly just for the sake of doing all of those things. But they have truly prepared his heart to seek God. Um, again, that's a lesson for us. Is that let us not think that our worship is acceptable to the Lord if we're only simply doing certain things outwardly. And if our heart is not in tune with worshiping him. So the feast continues, and as I said, this feast of unleavened bread was normally a week long. Um, verse 23, I think, says that they extend the feast to last for two weeks. So things are going so well that they take even longer, twice as long, to celebrate this feast. And then verses 25 through 27 kind of summarize everything for us. And all the assembly of Judah rejoiced with the priests and the Levites and all the assembly that came from Israel, both the sojourners who came from the land of Israel and those living in Judah. 
So there was great joy in Jerusalem because there was nothing like this in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Then the Levitical priests arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came to his holy dwelling place to heaven. Now I think this little summary statement, particularly verse 27, along with what we read in verse 20, where the Lord healed the people, I think the chronicler is wanting to remind us of something that happened back in Solomon's reign when he dedicated the temple. And he prayed this dedicatory prayer, and the Lord responded to that. And we looked at that that first week of the survey. Um, it was Second Chronicles 7.14. But if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, seek my face, and pray, then I will hear from heaven, and I will... They will return to me, I'll hear from heaven, and heal their land. So I think that this is showing us a way that the Lord is being faithful to do that for his people. We saw in verse 20 that he was healing the people because of Hezekiah's prayer. And then in verse 27, again, their voice was heard and their prayer came to his holy dwelling place to heaven. So the chronicler is showing us that as much as Hezekiah was like David, he was also like Solomon, I think. Doing all the things that he should have been doing to lead his people to live worshipful lives. And I think as good as, as well as we've ever seen in our survey, this could be a place, this could be a man, Hezekiah, doing the things that he was doing, appears to be a man who was doing those three all-important things that a king was expected to do. He was obeying the Mosaic Covenant, he was fulfilling the Davidic covenant, and he was, as much as he could, trying to bring in the blessing of Abraham. Those three things that God wanted his king to do, Hezekiah appears to be doing them as much as he can. Not perfectly, but as much as he can. That's a good thing for Judah, because look what happens next. Chapter 31, verse 1. Now when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah broke the pillars in pieces, cut down the ashram, and pulled down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin, as well as in Ephraim and Manasseh, until they had destroyed them all. Then all the sons of Israel returned to their cities, each to his possession. So again, this may sound familiar, but it looks like that things are kind of spiraling outward. Again, first, it was the temple that was cleansed of uncleanness, uncleanliness. Then it was the city of Jerusalem, and now the people are going out into all the other cities around, the adjacent cities, and they're cut, cutting things down, breaking down pillars and ashram, destroying the places of false worship. So again, understand that the, what had just come before was they had celebrated the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. And I think that's significant because we know that um, one of the things that God prescribed should happen during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, of course, the whole point was you, had to, you couldn't have any leaven during that week, right? You couldn't make bread with leaven, with yeast, and that was, of course, referring to what happened at Passover. But one of the things that God wanted his people to do was to literally clean out their whole house of leaven, get rid of it all. 
And we know that in many places in Scripture, leaven or yeast oftentimes symbolizes sin. Not every time, but I think most of the time. And so I think it's significant that after they have celebrated the Passover, after they have celebrated this feast, which again doubled in length, I think that the way that they've been worshiping with these feasts is having an effect on their lives. And perhaps they're seeing the connection, the idea to get rid of the leaven, get rid of the sin, is now leading them to do what they've done and going all throughout Judah to take down the ashram, pull down the high places. That is to say that these feasts were not simply something that they did for the sake of doing them, but they were affecting the way they lived their lives. Um, I think they were really understanding the significance of what they had just celebrated with the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, we may be tempted to think, well, that has nothing to do with us. We don't celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We don't celebrate the Feast of Passover. Well, in some way, I think we could make a, a connection with the closest thing that we have, and that's the Lord's table. Because we know that the Lord's table, the Last Supper of Jesus, took place during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? And I think we can make our application here that as much as Israel understood their feast to lead them to live in a certain way, I think in a similar way, we can understand our festival or feast of remembrance in the Lord's table should also lead us to live in a certain way. That is, it shouldn't simply be something that we do for the sake of doing it. Because the thing they were remembering in Passover was that God had redeemed them from Israel. And what is the thing we remember during the Lord's table? It's the fact that God redeemed us in Christ by his very own blood, by his body. And so as much as Israel was determined to live a certain way in light of what they saw in these feasts, so we also, I think, should be determined to live a certain way because of what we see in the Lord's table. How can we not, after we see what Christ has done for us, be continually led to confess sin, set ourselves apart, and walk in holiness? Now, the rest of chapter 31 details some further reforms that took place regarding the temple. We're not going to look at those. We're going to look down at chapter 32 as time grows a little bit short. And our narrative kind of takes a turn here. After they've done all these things in worship, and now Assyria comes knocking on the door of Jerusalem. Uh, let me read just the first verse of chapter 31. After all these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities and thought to break into them himself. So as I said before, the Assyrians had already taken captive the northern kingdom, and now they are making a threat to Jerusalem itself. And how will Hezekiah respond? Verse 2, and I'll read at least through the first half of verse 6. 
Now when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come, that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he decided with his officers and his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. So many people assembled and stopped up all the springs and the stream which flowed through the region, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find abundant water? And he took courage and rebuilt all the wall that had been broken down and erected towers on it and built another outside, another outside wall and strengthened the millow in the city of David and made weapons and shields in great number. And he appointed military officers over the people and gathered them to him in the square at the city gate. And I'll wait to read the rest of that. Okay, so now Assyria is threatening Jerusalem. And what does Hezekiah do? Well, four things he does. He cuts off the water supply around Jerusalem. That's probably because for any time an army is going to invade, well, they need water, right? So he thinks if I can cut off the water supplies, they will not have a water supply for themselves. Secondly, he rebuilds and enlarges the city walls. Thirdly, he makes weapons. And lastly, he appoints military officers. So obviously, he's preparing for a siege. He's preparing for battle. And these appear to be wise things that he's doing. It looks like that he's doing the prudent things that a king should do when a foreign army is threatening your front door. Not only does it appear he's being wise, it appears he's being pious. Look at the rest of verse 6 through 8. And so he spoke encouragingly to them, that is, his people, saying, Be strong and courageous, do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the multitude which is with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So he speaks this brief little speech to his people to encourage them in the face of this army that's coming. And the things that he says are true. It is true that with them is only an arm of flesh. That is, Assyria only has men. But with us, we have the Lord to fight for us. Um, So it appears, again, that he's doing all the right things. But I think that chapter 32 in general is showing us kind of this second stage of Hezekiah's reign in that there were some things he did that were not as faithful as the others. It was often the case that the chronicler would divide the king's reigns kind of in two parts, kind of a faithful part and an unfaithful part. And I think that chapter 32 is structured that way, that there are several things that continue to happen in this chapter that lead me to believe that Hezekiah is not really doing the right thing. Now, why do I say that? Um, Well, I already gave you the first reason, the way the chronicler divides the king's reign. Secondly, look at the result of his speech in verse 8. It says the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. When I think we should understand whose word should they have been relying on, not Hezekiah's, but God's. And then thirdly, What Hezekiah apparently has not done yet is to pray or to seek the Lord. There's a foreign army waiting to invade, and Hezekiah appears to be relying on men. It appears to be he's relying on himself and his own ingenuity, rebuilding the walls, appointing military officers, 
redirecting water supplies, making weapons. And then I'm not quite sure how I'm going to wrap this up, but turn to Isaiah chapter 22 for our fourth reason why I think Hezekiah is not quite getting it right. Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah's ministry occurred during, at least partly, in Hezekiah's reign. Isaiah 22, the chapter made famous by that book of Puritan prayer, the Valley of Vision. But look at verses 8 through 11 in Isaiah 22. I believe this is Isaiah giving a prophecy against the things that Hezekiah is doing. Again, Isaiah 22, verse 8. And he removed the defense of Judah. And that day, you, and I think the you refers to Hezekiah, depended on the weapons of the house of the forest. And you saw that the breaches in the wall of the city of David were many. And you collected the waters of the lower pool. And you counted the houses of Jerusalem. And you tore down houses to fortify the wall. And you made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool. But you did not depend on him who made it. Nor did you take into consideration him who planned it long ago. So the things that are being described here appear to be the things that Hezekiah is doing. Redirecting water supplies, making weapons, fortifying the wall. And Isaiah's conclusion is that he is not depending on God in this case. He is not depending on God. Now, why is that important? Well, um, I should have turned the page. It's important because what happens next is going to make things even a bit worse for Hezekiah. So if he is now depending on man and his response to Assyria, I'm going to have to, I think, summarize what happens next. But next, the king of Assyria sends messengers to Jerusalem, and they gather at the base of Jerusalem's city wall. And they begin to attempt to undermine Hezekiah's leadership. They begin to call out loudly so that the people of Judah can hear that they're effectively saying to the people of Judah, don't listen to Hezekiah. If you listen to him, you're going to be overrun. If you listen to your king, we're going to overtake you. And not only that, I need to read at least part of this. Turn back to Second Chronicles 22. 32. Did I say 22? I meant 32. I'm sorry. Um, look at uh, Second Chronicles 32, verse 16. So this is uh, the people of Assyria speaking against the Lord, verse 16. And his servants spoke further against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. He, that is Assyria, the king of Assyria, wrote letters to insult the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, as the gods of the nations, the lands, have not yet delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah shall not deliver his people from my hand. And they called out with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and terrify them so that they might take the city. And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as of the gods of the peoples of the earth, the work of men's hands. So do you see what's happening? The Assyrians are insulting Hezekiah, and they're also insulting God himself. 
and they are likening God to a man-made idol, as if he was one of the gods of the peoples of the earth, the work of men's hands. Now, if there were ever fighting words, I think those are them. And it's at this point, I think, when Hezekiah turns to the Lord. The next verse, verse 20, says, But King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, prayed about this and cried out to heaven. So now, after Assyria has threatened both Hezekiah and mocked God himself, now Hezekiah prays. I was going to have us turn and read the prayer, which is recorded in Isaiah, but we don't have time. Let me just read the next verse, the next two verses, and we'll wrap up. The Lord answers his prayer in verse 21. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned in shame to his own land. When he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. The Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. So Hezekiah does pray. God answers the prayer and destroys the Assyrian threat. Sennacherib himself, the king, is killed by some of his own children. So how might we conclude? Well, I think we can make a conclusion kind of draw things together related to how trustworthy is our God? How faithful is our God? Um, and this is a connection that I didn't make myself, but think about this. The idea that the Assyrians, they're outside the city wall, were mocking God and saying that he is as the gods of the people, he is just any other god, like an idol of wood or stone. It's really a laughable idea that they would be doing that. And they thought that they were wise, and they were effectively saying that Hezekiah and his God were fools. But God proved otherwise because God destroyed the Assyrians, defeated the Assyrians, and Sennacherib. And so consider something that happened many, many years later, also outside Jerusalem city wall, where this time there were men and women not the Assyrians, but they were Romans and they were Jews, not looking up high on a wall, but looking high up on a cross, seeing Jesus himself. Again, they were mocking God, this time to his face. And again, similar to this situation, they thought that they were wise and that he was the fool. But God would prove otherwise, proving that God himself has defeated the power of death and the devil. And I would say that since God has proved himself to be faithful in spite of things like that, he's proved himself that he is the one true God time and again, both in Chronicles and in our own lives. I think that God is always worthy for us to place our trust. We can always place our faith. We can follow in Hezekiah's example to set our hearts to live lives of worship. And he was always our faithful defender, redeemer, and Lord. Let's pray to conclude. Lord, you 